Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. All right, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. On this show, we interview a lot of recovering addicts, people who have stories of redemption, people who have stories of, uh, you know, inspirational stories. Tonight, we have Janice T., I know Janice through Rachel B, who was on the podcast before, and she messaged me and was like, you got to get my friend Janice. Oh, my God. And you live in Jacksonville, so this is kind of a drive for me, but uh, see Rachel really highly in my life. Like, I have a lot of respect for her. So when I asked her if she knew anyone else on the podcast and she suggested you, I you know, was really excited to do this. So welcome, Janice. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So I guess I'll just get into the the good stuff, the nitty gritty. Um, yeah. Like you said, my name is Janice, and um, just to give you a little bit of backstory, how I got to where I ended up um, as far as my addiction. Um, growing up, I had um, my parents were married. They, from a very young age, gave me a very distorted view. Um, of God. My parents were missionaries. They met out in the mission field. They would travel all over the United States kind of, you know, preaching the Bible and telling people about the Lord. And so God was talked about a lot in my home. Um, However, that was just kind of an outside appearance that they kept up because Mm -hmm. behind closed doors, my dad was extremely abusive. Um, As a little kid, I can remember, you know, there being a lot of pictures on the walls and that was because my dad was covering up the holes from throwing my mom's head through them. There was times when I came home and, and I couldn't find my dog and I would walk into the garage and, I mean, I don't want to call it a torture chamber, but just the garage was where my dog went when he was bad. But every time I went in there to look for him, he was either hanging by the garage rack by his throat or my dad would stick my cats inside the shop back and then turn it on. Wow. You know, yeah, just really... um cruel, cruel things and some very um, violent uh, behavior that I saw from a very young age, not just with my animals, but towards my mom as well. I had a baby brother who was a baby at the time, like, you know, under two years old. So he doesn't really remember a whole lot of it. So I remember um, from a very young age, kind of just being the one that was taking care of him, protecting him, because I remember he would cry and I would cry and I would just be holding on to him, you know, while the abuse was going on. My grandmother would come around a lot, you know, because she knew what was happening, but my mom didn't have the courage or the strength to leave my dad. My mom suffers from a lot of mental health issues, um, severe depression. She's never been clinically diagnosed, but her behaviors, and I didn't know this obviously mm-hmm. until later on in life, but a lot of her behaviors are definitely issues with with her mental health that she has no control over, you know, because she's not getting the proper treatment. So um, her and my dad together were just super toxic, just very violent, you know. And and so that was a norm in my household. And I think uh, I was seven when um, my dad, I don't even remember where we were coming back from, but we came came back from somewhere. We came inside the house and I was walking through 
my house to go to the bathroom. And so like I had to, you know, go through the hallway or cut through the living room, go through the hallway to go to the restroom. And when I went in, I looked down on the floor and I saw a gun there. And I had been taught, you know, in school, don't don't play with guns. You know, mm -hmm. that was all great. And so I just stepped over it, went to the bathroom. But when I came out, I don't know what it was. But for some reason, like, the gun looked different to me. It looked like a toy. It didn't look like the same gun I had originally seen. And, I, and so I picked it up and I started playing with it. And my mom saw me playing with it and runs over to me. And the gun accidentally goes off. And I accidentally shot my mom. No way. Yeah. And oh, I, my God. Yeah. And whose gun was this? It was my dad's. Why was it on the floor? He just left it left there. Left it there? Left it there. Not not like on the table, but like on the floor in the middle of the hallway. He oh just my left God. it. And my mom was holding my baby brother in her arms. And it, it got her in the leg, which was like less than an inch away from hitting my little brother. And of course, my dad, you know, he didn't want to explain to the police. Why the gun was on the floor. Right. While the, so he wouldn't let my mom go to the hospital. And had oh my god! Yeah, he would not let her go, and he made her sit there in like complete agony, in pain. Um, got the bullet out himself, and and that was it. Thank God it didn't, you know, get infected or anything. And of course, you know, my dad beat the crap out of me for it, even though he was the one who left the gun on the floor. How old were you? I was seven. So after that happened, and I still don't know because I've never asked my mom like what was it that gave her the courage to say like, okay, enough is enough. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not doing this anymore. But I just remember um, my dad packing up his stuff and leaving. And while there was some grief there, there was also some relief, you know, because I knew I wouldn't have to witness, you know, my dad beating my mom anymore, it just constant arguing. And, and you you were always living like in a state of fear, you know, in, the, in your home. And that's, mm -hmm. it's not a good feeling. So my dad left and uh, they went through a divorce and did the, you know, every other weekend time sharing plan and everything. And my grandmother started coming around more and she would come Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays to take care of my brother so my mom could work because she was now a single parent. My grandmother was a huge constant, probably the only safe, you know, non-toxic role model mm -hmm. that I had. And so I cling to her. And um, I mean, she was like, the grandmother that like baked apple pies and like put them mm -hmm. in the you know in the windowsill and and I remember being a kid and I would be getting ready for school and she would take these um, she would get like yarn and she would sew a lot and knit stuff and she would get these reindeer or animal heads and you if you squeeze them on the top and the bottom their mouths would open up and yeah. she would put like little candies in there and mm -hmm. I would find them like in my pockets and stuff and. I would get in, be getting ready for school and, and I would find those and it would just bring me like so much joy, you know, just mm -hmm. like the little things. And so this was probably around like, I think I was like eight. And then when I was nine, she got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which is a very, very violent form of cancer and it takes people out quick. And this was back in the 90s. So like medicine and like radiation and chemo, you know, it wasn't as advanced as mm -hmm. it is now. And I mean, even today, not a lot of people can survive pancreatic cancer. So she was taken from us pretty quick. That was devastating to me, you know, and, and it was devastating to my mom as well. And for a long, long time, um, I want to say for some years, my mom just kind of mentally checked out even more. And she just, you know, wasn't there. Like I would go into her room and like try and talk to her, tell her about my brother. And she would just be blank. It was mm -hmm. like I was talking to the wall. 
So because she had passed away, there needed to be, you know, somebody to watch us, you know, because my mom, again, she was a single parent, you know, having to work um, as much as she can because she had a mortgage and she had kids to take care of. So she would hire babysitters, you know, and there was this girl in our neighborhood. Her name was Jessica, and my mom had her come over and watch us. I remember... I, th- I want to say it was probably about two months into her babysitting us. Mm-hmm. She took me into my bedroom and took her clothes off and then took mine off and then started touching me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm like nine and a, like nine and a half, ten years old or something mm-hmm. like that. And so for a long time that went on, probably for like about a year, you know, and I can remember like this happening to me being so confused, being so scared, feeling so much shame, you know, so much guilt, thinking it was my fault, so afraid to say something. But I think a child, when something like that happens to them, they can't process what's going on, so they start acting out. You think your mom ever knew? Eventually she did, yeah, Mm -hmm. she did. And that's what happened is I started acting out sexually, like in public, Mm -hmm. you know, because I couldn't deal with what was going on you know, to my body, like my mind couldn't handle it. My heart couldn't handle it. I was shattered, you know, and I was angry. So when it finally came out in the open of what was happening and I told, it was swept under the rug. You know, no, the police weren't called, counseling. I I didn't get none of that. You know, I think today, like, I can say kind of she did the best she could, Mm -hmm. but there's still a lot of like hurt and resentment towards that because, you know, I was a kid and, um, but anyway, um, so yeah, so so that went on and and uh my trauma was just swept under the rug and so I just continued to grow more and more and more into this teenager who who hated herself, who hated her body, didn't like the way she felt on the inside because I couldn't deal with what had happened to me. You know, my mom continued to let men just in and out of her life, renting rooms to random men as well, which then opened the door for more, you know, more trauma, more more molestation, um, rape mm. numerous times. Wow. You know, I didn't say anything. And, and this is all before like the age of what, 16? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all before the age of 16. And I didn't say anything based on my experience. Before, before. you're before. like, I said something like, before and nothing matter. happened. So it doesn't why matter. would I say something now? Exactly. So I didn't say anything and I just kept it kind of all bottled up inside. But my behaviors and my anger were still, you know, coming out like I would be in school and I would, I would fight, like I hated men mm-hmm. at this point, you know, and I would just pick on guys at my school and I would like beat the crap out of them, pick up like, yeah. you know, the desk and like throw it at them, you know, <laughs> because I'm trying to like process mm-hmm. and um, deal with this anger and this, shame that I'm I'm going through on the inside. So I would get put in like in school suspension a lot, kicked out of school, suspended, all of that. And then I finally, um, I just stopped going. And so I dropped out at 16, started going to a vocational school to get my GED. But uh, I ended up meeting an older guy and he was 22 and I was 16 years old. And I couldn't believe that he noticed me that he, you know, wa- was giving me attention. Where'd you meet him at? Um, so I met him through a friend that I w- actually went to high school with. Mm-hmm. It was his older brother. I was hanging out with Chris 
and then he entered, he, he lived with his older brother, Paul. Mm-hmm. And so I went over to hang out with Chris and, and Paul was there. And like, you know, when he came home, I was like, wow, he's really, really cute. But I just, I wouldn't even like look him in the eye, you know? And cause mm-hmm. I was just so, I, I was shy, yeah. you know what I mean? But he liked me. And for the first time, you know, in a long time, like I felt, I felt beautiful. So we started dating and like I said, I was 16 and and he was going to college in Orlando, which is Full Sail University, which is kind of like for digital media and mm-hmm. 3D graphic arts and all that. So it was a 24-hour school. So like they would have class at like two o'clock in the afternoon and then they would have it again at like three o'clock in the morning. So they were doing like a lot of drugs, oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just to stay awake. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, I would hang out with him. And, and by this time, like I had experimented you know, with drinking and smoking pot and doing cocaine and ecstasy was real big back then. You know, mm-hmm. the whole like uh, the rave scene was huge. And I mean, I I got high, but like those, I, I would get bored with those drugs. Yeah, It wouldn't, you know what I mean? Like it didn't, it didn't uh, keep my interest at all. So I was with him. We were at one of his really good friend's house and they were passing around like a plate, mm-hmm. you know, with powder on it. And I didn't know what it was. And they were calling it tech. And I don't know how old you, yeah. So that was like, (laughs) that that was, (laughs) so that was the the street slang for heroin back in uh, like the late 90s, early 2000s. Tech? Yeah, tech. Okay. Yeah. What is that? You want to get technical? I like, yeah. (laughs) That's what we called it. You know, I thought it was cocaine. You know what I mean? And like growing up, um, you know, you, you went to dare in school and they told you you know they would have like like that that glass picture oh, like all the drugs. Yeah, yeah with like all the drugs in it and i mean but like the only thing they really ever said about heroin is just don't do it yeah you know and so i'm here i'm with like all these grown people mm-hmm. you know and i wanted them to see, i wanted to belong because i i haven't felt like i've belonged like ever in my life and um so i did it and it made me sick to my stomach but for the first time ever it was like I was able to deal with everything that was going on inside of me, like all the hurt, all the anger, all the shame, just everything. And it was it was doable now, mm-hmm. you know? So I like we did it and I didn't say anything. And but like inside secretly wanting him to say, hey, you want to do that again? You know, like mm-hmm. the next weekend that we hung out or whatever. And it eventually got to that point. So and, this is crazy. So this is a 22 year old guy and you're 16 and you do mm-hmm. heroin with him. Mm-hmm. That's wild. Yeah. 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 He, uh, yeah, it really is. So eventually it gets to the point where he's sticking needles in my arms, you know, and before my 17th birthday, I'm, I'm, a you know, almost 17 year old girl with a heroin addiction mm. and, uh, extremely scared to tell my, my family, my parents, you know, obviously my behavior and, and money's missing and, you know, all the, all the traits, all the things that happen that come with addiction, um, are going on, but they just, you know, my mom doesn't put two and two together, you know, at all. So we go so hard. He ends up dropping out of college, losing his apartment. He had a really good job working for um, a third-party government that does 3D tutorials for building the Comanche helicopter to, like, teach um, the military. <laughs> wow. Yeah. He So he moves in, and I'm not 18 yet, mm-hmm. and, and he moves into my mom's house, but my mom won't let him, you know, live in my room, so he's got to live in oh, another room in the crazy. house. <laughs> yeah. So he moves in and that, you know, him moving in gave us more money 
you know, so of course it got worse. Mm -hmm. And it, it eventually like, it got to a point where I couldn't hide it anymore, you know? And uh, it was right after my 18th birthday that I came clean and told my mom for the first time that I that I had a drug problem. And of course she wanted to sweep it under the rug, you know, just pretend like what I just said to her didn't happen and she wasn't listening to me. And I was asking her for help because I didn't know how to stop. But I think at this point, like I just didn't want to be sick. I didn't necessarily want to give up getting high because this was my way of, um, you know, of coping and of dealing with everything. But I, I didn't want to be sick anymore because this was, you know, a habit that I couldn't maintain or mm-hmm. afford. Um, Are you IV and heroin at this point? Yes. That's your drug of choice? Yeah. Okay. that's Yeah, that was my drug of choice. So she's, and at this time I still had insurance, you mm-hmm. know, I was still on my mom's insurance. So she sends me down to South Florida to a, a program. Yeah, for a rehab. And I mean, of course, I didn't, I didn't stay very long. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I did the detox and I was like, I'm, I'm cured. I'm good. Let's go. Yeah. You know, and I came back home and I, I started using again and my mom got to a point, my dad, by, by this, by this time, he like, he wants to kill Paul, you know? And, and so Paul was like, I, I, I can't stay here anymore. Mm-hmm. Cause my dad blamed him for everything, you know, cause I was a 16 year old yeah, girl exactly. and he's a 22 year old man, you know, even though I understand addiction is addiction and you just, you're not, you know, thinking clearly and whatever, but my dad didn't see it like that. So, um, so yeah, so my mom tells Paul, you, you gotta go, you gotta get out. He has nowhere to go. Um, so he moves to Seattle, Washington. And I think like him moving was how, you know, we eventually ended up, you know, splitting up because he actually, he he wanted to stop. He didn't want to use anymore, mm-hmm. but I did. So he moves to Seattle and we just kind of, you know, go our separate ways or whatever. And I get into, you know, the life of the street life. And here I am, you know, a young 18, 19 year old, you know, white girl with blonde hair, green eyes and freckles. And, and so, I mean, I, I was like partying all the time, you know, mm-hmm. and I was always around everybody. And, and, and this is in Orlando. Yeah. Yeah. It's in Orlando, um, like UCF area. Mm-hmm. And then I, uh, I met, I met a guy and his, his name was Christian and completely fell in love with this man, you know, and, and, uh, he was, he was amazing, but uh, he smoked crack cocaine. And, you know, I had never done that before. I was still, you know, using heroin heavily and consistently. And uh, I wanted to be around him. And and the way I met him was I was hanging out with somebody and they used heroin, but they also smoked crack. And mm-hmm. so they called, a tr- yeah, they called a drug dealer and like Christian was riding with the drug dealer. Oh, okay. So in order to get him to come to me, <laughs> I bought crack. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I didn't even want to do it. Mm-hmm. So he and I end up, <laughs> <That's so funny>. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wanted what I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> so he and I, we end up getting together. Who's your cute friend? Oh, call the crack dealer. Exactly. Come <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's exactly how it went mm-hmm. down. Um, so he, he and I end up like hooking up and I mean, we were crazy together. Mm-hmm. I, it was like a modern day Bonnie and Clyde. Like I could look at him and he would know what I was thinking. And and when I say in this context, it's like us robbing people. Yeah. You know, we would rob people left and right. I'm so surprised. Like 
Like houses or drug dealers or both, all all of it. Yeah, and people. And people People too. Like walking on the street. Well, no, not like walking on the street, but I would like post up at a a gas station, Mm -hmm. you know, looking like I needed a ride somewhere. And And then rob a John or something. Well, it, I mean, it wasn't a John. It was just a person. As somebody Yeah, just a person. And uh, like I would go into the store and I would see who's paying with cash and they'll open up their wallet and pull mm-hmm. out, you know, to pay. And I'd be like, oh, he's got a lot of money on him. And so I would go outside and I would just look at him. And then the guy would come out and I would say, hey, do you think you could give me a ride somewhere? I, I'm stranded here. And I would take them down a dark road well not a dark road but like a dead end road a dead end road and christian would already be there waiting yeah and he had you know a gun and of course they would give up their wallet and we would take their keys and mm-hmm. throw them you know in the woods somewhere and then take off um so we did that for a long time which i'm shocked we didn't end up getting shot because we 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 actually ran into somebody we we, we robbed one time oh really yeah <laughs> what happened uh, we just gave them a very scary look, thinking, hope, hoping that they would be scared of us. Yeah. And like, no, we were actually driving down the road and we're next to them in traffic. And so I look to my left and I'm like, Christian, look who it is. And he looks and Christian looks at him and the guy looks and he like goes like, you know, like kind of scared. scared. And and I was like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so we weren't too nothing worried. Nothing happened, yeah. Yeah, nothing happened. So anyway, so even though like me and Christian, you know, we were... <laughs> I want to say love, but it, it wasn't, it was just sick. Mm-hmm. You know, it was so sick. And because knowing what love looked like looks like now, that that was not love. Mm-hmm. That was just But at the time you thought it was. But at the time yeah, I thought it was, you know. And um I remember he and I, we got into a really big fight. And I had left. I had walked away from him. And I was walking down a road and I was in front of a neighborhood, like a, a subdivision. And I, I think I had been up for like days and I had just done like a really big shot of heroin, popped a couple Xanaxes. And the next thing that I remember is waking up in the hospital with like a catheter in me and them telling me you're nine weeks pregnant. And I mm. had just been in a coma for like three days. I had overdosed. Somebody found me in the ditch mm. in front of the subdivision, just, you know, laying there. So I woke up in the hospital and and they told me I'm nine weeks pregnant. And I was devastated, you know, because for one, just had an overdose. Is this baby that's inside of me? Did this OD and all the drugs that I've been doing? Is this, you know, going to hurt the baby? Yeah. Hurt the child. Uh, uh, is it going to be born with, you know, deformities and everything? And and um, so they, they ended up releasing me. I go home. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to get clean. You know, I'm pregnant. I I care about this baby. I want to be a mom. I don't believe in abortion. So I go into my room and all I can think about is getting high. That's all I can think about. And like by this time, you know, I'm still kind of, I'm like, I'm detoxing. And so I remember like just sitting in my room crying because I wanted to use so bad, but I wanted this baby to be okay. And so I remember like, taking out a piece of paper and like I wrote like I couldn't even form words at this point and like I wrote like a prayer down to God asking him to protect this life that's inside of me because Mm -hmm. I don't think I can stop and so I took that prayer and I put it in a bible and that was it and then I kind of went off to the races and you know went extremely extremely hard but because I was pregnant 
My mom marchman acted me, which is like a Baker Act mm-hmm. for drug addicts, and forced me into treatment. I'm in, I'm in detox. You know, they got me uh, maintenanced out on methadone because I came in, you know, on on heroin. Mm-hmm. I was in there for like 34 days, and I was, I kept waiting to go in front of a judge because they were going to sentence me to treatment. You know, court order me, and um, I remember going to court, and I talked that judge into giving me outpatient, hmm. which is crazy because every single person that I had ever seen that had been pregnant or whatever, yeah, or pregnant, yeah, especially pregnant, yeah. you know, they're gonna send you to treatment because it's not about you; it's about that unborn child, mm-hmm. you know. And I talked him into giving me outpatient, and. I didn't even go back to the detox to get my stuff. I, from the courthouse, went straight to the dope hole and got high. So there was, which I didn't know it at the time, um, there was a warrant out for my arrest for a theft charge that I had done but never got caught for, like, when it happened. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting high, and and then I get told, like, the police are looking for me. And... I, I So I start running, you know, I'm hiding and everything. I get picked up, I get arrested. But this warrant is out of Brevard County, which is kind of like the sister county to Orlando. It's mm-hmm. like Cocoa Beach area. And this was back in 2007. So at this point, not all the jails are dosing women on methadone if they're pregnant. Like now it's completely different. Like mm-hmm. if you come in pregnant, even if you're not on methadone and you're on heroin, they put you on it. Gotcha. Because because the baby, you know, the baby going through withdrawals, that could kill. Of course. Yeah, that could kill the baby. I get arrested in Orange County for the out-of-county warrant. So they're dosing me in the jail, go to Brevard, and they don't. And so because they know I'm going to be withdrawing from methadone, they put me in the medical ward. And and this by this point, I'm like 24 weeks pregnant, mm-hmm. which is like five months-ish. So I'm in, I'm in the jail, and I'm literally like sitting, I'm, I'm detoxing like crazy. You know, I'm so sick and I'm just talking to my stomach, <laughs> you know, because uh, I, I honestly felt like I was losing my mind and going crazy. And all of a sudden, I feel like this wetness. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? And it's like happening, you know, in my pants. Mm-hmm. My water broke and I'm, I'm bleeding. And so I start like beating on the glass, you know, my water just broke. I'm bleeding. Something's happening. And so they rushed me to Cape Canaveral Hospital. hospital. Yeah, hospital there. And they don't have like a high-risk women's pregnancy hospital. So they had to transport me in an ambulance with two COs to or back to Orlando to Winnie Palmer. So I get there, and my, and it, and my water had broke. Um, they did uh, a sonogram on the baby just to make sure she was okay. Um, they put me on complete bed rest, put a catheter in me. I couldn't even get up to go to the bathroom. And, you know, one of those belts for the heart to, to continue to monitor her, her, her. Well, I didn't know it was a girl at the point at this point in time, but monitor uh, her heart rate. I remember just sitting there in the hospital with these two COs, you know, back and forth. I mean, just every day, you know, shift change and everything, completely miserable. And they had said to me, because I had been in, in uh, Brevard for like five or six days before this happened. And they had said to me, do you want us to put you back on methadone? And I was like, no. I'm like, I've already been off of it for six days. Mm-hmm. Don't put me back on it. Because I was incarcerated and because I was being held on a warrant there, 
anytime an inmate is put into a hospital and is under the, you know, the jurisdiction and the care of the jail, like they're responsible for the bill. Not only that, but um, they're paying two correctional officers to drive like an hour and a half mm-hmm. every single day, mileage, you know, their time, all that. And they were like, this, this chick is too much. She's costing us too much money. <laughs> yeah. So they had an emergency hearing in front of a judge and I was ROR'd on my charges. Mm-hmm. And I remember the CO coming from Brevard to Orlando, bringing me my property, bringing me my release paper. And just saying you're done. Yeah. And uncuff me, you know, I was shackled to, by the, um, my legs were shackled to, to the hospital bed, uncuff me. And they're like, all right, Miss Tucker, you're free. So I called my mom and I'm like, come get me. And she was like, what do you mean? Come get you. Your, you, your water broke. You, you need to stay there. I was like, no, come get me. And so I signed myself out against medical advice. Were they trying to get you to stay? Like, yeah. Oh yeah. And the doctor came in. And he said, he's like, I'm telling you right now, he's like, if you leave, there is a 90, I can't remember, 90 something percent chance that your baby will die. Mm-hmm. And I didn't care. I know I wasn't capable of caring. Like the obsession was so intense and so strong and so powerful that I just wanted to go use. And so I left and I went and got high. And are you smoking crack at this point or heroin or both? both. Yeah, whatever. Both. I was doing both. I was I was smoking crack, doing heroin, and I was shooting cocaine. Mm-hmm. So um, I leave, and I think it was probably like not even four days. I start feeling this pain in my stomach. And so I'd never been pregnant before. I'd never had a baby before, so I didn't know it, but it was contractions. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I ignored it for a couple hours because, like, I still wanted to keep getting high, you know? And um, But it got... So bad. I couldn't ignore the the pain anymore. And they were closer and closer and closer. And so uh I I go to the emergency room. They take me in and they tell me I'm having contractions. I'm going into labor. And my first thought, of course, is to give me something for the pain. Mm-hmm. You know? But I have like drug addict <laughs> tolerance. <yeah. laughs> well, tolerance, not only no, oh, yeah. not just that, but I have like you know, on, on my medical records, like... Med-seeking, right. drug addict, yeah. So they treated me like crap. Mm-hmm. And that's all that they saw me as. Even though I was, like, legitimately in pain, mm-hmm. they gave me something for the contractions, but it was a non-narcotic. Mm-hmm. And then they couldn't find a vein in me, <laughs> you know? So they had to, like, give me a pick line in my foot. They slowed the, the contractions down, and they put me, uh, they put me in my room. And they just came in and monitored me every now and then. And I remember I had gotten to a point, like my mom was like, I can't, I was being a major, you know what? Like Mm -hmm. I was just angry and whatever. So my mom left. She left me there. She's like, I'm not staying here with you. (laughs) And uh, so she left me. And I remember like the contractions were really close. And I was like, "I, I, I think I'm about to have this baby. And so I'm like pushing the, button yeah the hospital button like somebody come in here and help me and they wouldn't come and then finally somebody came in and i'm sitting there i'm screaming at them i'm like you have to do something i'm like this baby is coming and she's like no you're fine and i was so mad and so this was a seventh day adventist hospital and so they still had bathtubs 
Mm -hmm. And so I go into the bathtub and I turn on the hot water and I'm just letting like the hot water hit my stomach because Mm -hmm. it hurts. So like the control, like it literally feels like a shredder is in your stomach. So I'm squatting down and I literally like, I go to exhale and I drop my head and I see a foot. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) I see a foot. And so I pull the emergency thing, like when you're in the bathroom and like something happens. And so they're coming in. And they're, and I'm yelling at them at, at this point, calling them every, you know, cuss. I effing told you I was having this baby. You didn't want to listen to me. And she was breech. So I was supposed to have a C-section, not regular yeah. childbirth. So they put me on a stretcher. They're like taking me down to the delivery room. And they're like, you can't push yet. You can't push yet. And like when you're in labor, your body is naturally trying to get this baby out. So they're telling me not to push. I'm like, what do you mean don't push? And it's my body is just pushing. Mm -hmm. And so I finally get back there. The doctor gets there and he's like, he, you know, puts my legs up and he's like, oh, you got to push. And I'm like, wait, 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 we're supposed to have a C-section. What about epidural? What about numbing medicine? He's like, no, you got to push now. Jeez. So I gave birth to her naturally, Mm -hmm. which was so painful. <laughs> it was so bad. How many weeks was she? Uh, 29. So it's really early, right? Yeah, six, like a little over six months. Mm-hmm. She was a preemie. She was a pound and a half. She was itty bitty. So I remember giving birth and not hearing anything. And again, at this point, like I didn't know if it was a boy or a girl, but in my heart, like I knew, like I already had already named her Kayla. And I was like, is the baby okay? Because I didn't hear, I didn't hear nothing. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking in my head, you know, this is, God's going to punish me. She's going to come out and be brain dead or, you know, something's going to be wrong because I couldn't stay clean. Then I heard her cry and he said, she's perfect. And I just cried. And then after that, uh, they put something in my IV and, you know, I went out and I woke up in my hospital room a couple hours later and my mom was there and she had already been back to see the baby. They put her immediately into the NICU and because she was really tiny and and she wasn't developed enough to where she could hold her own body heat. So they had her under a special lamp and they had like saran wrap on her and she was just this little burrito looking thing. <laughs> and I went back there and I looked at her and um, I just cried, you know? And like that right there w- with as undeserving as it was, that was God's grace in my life, you know? Because from everything that I did, I didn't deserve to have, I didn't deserve to have a baby, mm-hmm. you know? There's people out there that would love to have a child that would give that baby everything and, and um, raise them up in a good way. And, and here I am taking advantage of, of what God calls, you know, a blessing and a gift. Mm-hmm. So I stayed in the hospital because since she was born with... Um, they knew I was detoxing from methadone. Like they knew that I had come from jail. So there was a DCF case now open. And so to look good on my case, I didn't leave against medical advice again. I stayed until they released me. Because in my mind, I'm like, all right, I'm going to do good. I'm going to, I'm going to be a mom, you know, I'm going to love this baby. And, but of course that didn't last, you know, as soon as I got out, probably home for about an hour and I'm out, you know, back doing the same thing, you know, getting high. And um, she was in the NICU for like 96 days because she had to get up to a certain weight before they would release her. And I went and saw her twice. And that's it. 
You know, my mom went and saw her every single day after work, every single day. You know, I'm I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that, that she did that. What about Christian? Where is he in all this? Getting high too. Just totally yeah. absent. He came. He came twice to mm-hmm. see her. Are you guys using together at this point, or just no, no, just totally no. separate? No, because after um, so I didn't tell you this. After I found out I was pregnant, I had also found out he had cheated on me and mm-hmm. got somebody else pregnant. So he cheated on you? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a shocker. I know. Uh, yeah, he had cheated Christian on me. Christian the crackhead. <laughs> wow. Um, and he had gotten her pregnant, and we were like three weeks apart in pregnancy. Wow. Yeah, and so we what had a like, dog. yeah, it was. We were gonna like live together and raise the babies, and of course that didn't last or work out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so no, we we were not together. Um, he came up there like twice, like, once or twice, I can't mm-hmm. remember, to see her. I can't remember when it was, but a, a little bit late, like after I had Kayla, like after I gave birth to her, that girl Emily gave birth to her baby. And that baby was born with deformities, wow. you know, a lot of health issues. And I couldn't believe like that that didn't happen to me. You know, because her and I, like, same thing. Same thing. Use, yeah. Drug you know, addicts. same thing. And so I was, I remember sitting at my house and I uh, heard the news about Emily's baby. And uh, her the baby's name was Nevaeh. My mom was like, Don't you remember? I'm like, No. And so she, like, and I didn't even know she had seen this because I didn't tell her I put this prayer in this Bible for this baby, mm-hmm. you know, for my daughter. Um, she's like, I found this. And she was like, You know, that's God. God protected her. Uh-huh. And your mom's very religious, right? So she were both of your parents pretty religious. They were missionaries, but if you ask me now, based on what I know about, You're like no way. Well, no, it's there. What they were following, in my opinion, was a cult. A cult. Yeah, it was not Christianity, yeah. like at all. That happened, and, and I continued to use, and you know, I kept getting brought back to like juvenile court. I kept getting arrested, getting, you know, more charges put on me. Um, I would never show up. Like if I was free, I wasn't showing up to court. The only time I would show up to court is if I was incarcerated. Yeah. Yeah. If I was incarcerated, that was the only time I would go. So it finally got to a point where they terminated my rights, you know, which they should have. Mm -hmm. I was piece of crap. Mom, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't doing anything for her. I still say this and I, I wholeheartedly believe it. Like, the best thing that ever happened to me was my daughter got taken from me. And the worst thing that ever happened to me was my daughter got taken from me, you know, and she was adopted by my mom. Now, I love my mom and I'm grateful that she adopted her. However, the same woman that raised me is raising my daughter. You're seeing the cycle happen again. Right. And I'm seeing it, you know, now. I, by this point, I'm probably like 24, 25. But I meet this girl you know, because I'm in my addiction and like, I can only like take care of my habit, you know, by stealing for, for so long. And I, I meet this girl, she's in this really pretty dress. Like she's got these nice heels on and she's talking to me and she's flashing all this money. And I'm just like, how do you, what are you doing? How do you do that? She's like, I'm going to take you to meet somebody. And I said, okay. And so she's like, I'm going to take you to meet my daddy. And I'm literally thinking her dad. <laughs> dad. <laughs> I was so damn green. Like, why do I? You're going to take me to meet your dad? Why? <laughs> How you know? old are you at this time? I was like 25, 26. 25, 26, okay. <laughs> and so she takes me. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with Orlando or not, but like the strip in Orlando is mm-hmm. I drive an OBT, the trail. Mm-hmm. 
And so that's where she took me. She took me to the trail. That is where all of like prostitution is. Mm -hmm. This was not a, a prostitution situation. This was a human trafficking situation. So she takes me there and it's this house. It's a, a duplex. And so there's a, a downstairs and an upstairs. So he's got a Puerto Rican girl in there. He's got a black girl in there. He's got a white girl in there. And all of them have kids by him, you know? Wow. Yeah. And so these girls are working for him. And so she brings me in and she's like, Daddy, this is, you know, Janice. She's going to be a part of the team. And I'm, I'm like, what is going on? And he just like looks me up and down and he's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, we're definitely doing this. So he like dresses me up, puts me in some clothes, tells what me. What was this guy like? You mean like his physical appearance or Both. his just demeanor? Like his demeanor, what he looked like? Uh, he was a black guy with gold teeth, typical street hood thug. You know, thug. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, slinging crack, mm -hmm. selling girls, you know, selling weed, Molly or ecstasy, whatever, that, that type of, you know, profile. And he tells me that I'm going to a hotel at 11 o'clock tonight to go meet somebody. And not giving me details, but by this point, I'm, I'm starting to pick up. What, yeah, what that he's, he's pimping the girls out. Right, what he's, what he's talking about. And I was terrified. And um, I'm on probation at this, you know, at this point, too. So we go he has some guy pick me up take me wrote the girl comes with me because it was my first time and i'm like shaking we go in there and she goes in there with me and i couldn't do it i could not do it and she was like look i'm not going to tell him that you couldn't do it because he will beat you and she's like i'll just i'll just tell him that he didn't want you he just wanted me and so i said okay and so i told him that night when we got back and like and, and the entire ride back like i'm crying you know, because I'm scared. I can't leave. I don't know how I'm going to leave. How do, how did I get myself into this? Mm -hmm. And I remember coming home or going back to his house, coming, coming home and telling him, look, I have an appointment with my probation officer tomorrow. I need to go see him. I didn't have one, but this was the only thing I could come up with in they my mind. To leave. Yeah. yeah. And so I go there and I meet with my probation officer and I said, look, I said, you have to go out there and tell them that I tested positive for drugs and that you're arresting me. So oh, that's leave. how scared you were. That's how scared I was. And he did that, but he didn't ask me anything after that. <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> he you... wasn't like, do you need help? No. <laughs> he was just like, okay. Yeah, I'll just, I'll do that. <laughs> so. Yeah, I don't mean to laugh. It's just, uh, it's it's crazy how like people's lives just become like pieces of paper on people's desk and. Yeah. And just shuffle them on through. Mm -hmm. This This will be extra paperwork for me. So I don't want to deal with this. Yeah. You know, meanwhile, you know, people, this is someone's life, mm -hmm. you know? So they leave. They think I'm going to jail. And I don't, I can't even tell you who I called, but I, I called somebody and they came and picked me up. And I went back to like my area of town because that was like west side of Orlando where they mm -hmm. were at. I was on east side. And oh, wait. So you didn't go to jail? You just told them to tell them that you were going to go yeah, to no, jail? Yeah, no, I didn't go to jail. Okay. Yeah, no. So I you told the probation officer mm -hmm. to tell them in the parking lot mm -hmm. that she's going to in jail? In the waiting room. In the waiting room? Oh, yeah. my God. And he did it and didn't ask any questions no. why. No. Well, I told him I was I was scared for but, my yeah, life. Yeah, but he never said anything. But he never, he never asked me any questions beyond that, you know? Yeah. So I go home and, of course, you know, back to the races, back to using. Um, I had a couple more encounters with men posing as drug dealers. The ones, but, 
they're pimps or sex traffickers. Right. But they're traffickers. This one guy, his name was uh, Big Lip Chris. He actually got murdered a couple years ago. He had me in his house and I was so dope sick. And so I was just laying there and um, he was, you know, holding the fact that, like, if you want this, you're going to have to do this. Mm-hmm. I was so sick. And so, I, of course, you know, I did it, you know, and, and, and like today, you know, working in the anti-trafficking, you know, movement in order for like the legal definition for human trafficking is force, fraud, and coercion. And, you know, that's under the realm, under the umbrella of, uh, of what he was doing. What does that mean? Force, fraud, and coercion. So force is violent. Fraud is uh, by telling you, you know, I'll provide housing for you or I'll take care of you. Um, coercion is uh, me being a drug addict and... Taking advantage of a situation. Right. Vulnerability. Okay. Yeah. Or, or run away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you don't do this and I'm, I'm not going to, you know, feed you or, you know, whatever. So that's the definition of sex trafficking. The legal, legal, the legal the, definition. The, the yeah. Sex trafficking. Yeah. It has, it has to fall under those. And now when it comes to minors. It has to be all three of those? No, no, no. Just, just one? one. Okay. Just one. And when it, com- when it comes to minors, though, there is no, they're, they're automatically victims. Sex tra- okay. Automatically. Yeah. Because there is a difference between prostitution and, and human and trafficking. Sex trafficking. Yeah, there's a, there is a difference. You know, there are people out there, okay. um, but not saying. So if a girl says, hey, I'll have sex with you for money and then buys mo- drugs with the money, that's not sex trafficking. That's just prostitution. But if a guy knows that a girl needs money for drugs and she's like unwillingly wants to do that, unwillingly wants to do this, but they kind of force her or intimidate her to do it. In exchange for drugs, that would be sex trafficking. Well, no, because if you have somebody who is hooked on drugs, they're doing it for the drugs. Anybody that is deriving or benefiting from the proceeds of somebody selling their body, mm-hmm. that is sex trafficking. That is sex trafficking. It, it's, you got to take that classic pimp and hoe situation mm-hmm. out of your mind because that's not really what it... I mean, that does still happen. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like the older Old, older days. Thought of it. You know what I mean? Like it's so much more broad now. Like these men are posing as, you know, boyfriends that they love you. Oh, if you love me, you know, you'll go and do this. But there is an there is an entire mental, psychological, emotional manipulation behind it. These men are very very good at what they do. Mm-hmm. Very good. And when you take somebody who is completely broken and vulnerable and addicted to drugs, and I know for me and the girls that I work with too, I just wanted somebody to rescue me from myself, mm-hmm. you know? And they'll pose as that, but then they'll get you in debt with them. And then they will be your only means for survival. They'll be the only ones taking care of you and the only ones beating you, you know, and breaking you down like psychologically to where you feel like you can't leave. Yeah, your property at that point. Right, you know? And they have you trained. It's almost like Stockholm Syndrome, too. And you think that they care about you, mm-hmm. you know? And which is, for me, like, to even, like, like tap back into that mindset because of who I am today. And and I was, a sh- you know, wasn't easily manipulated growing up like like that. Just to think that I used to be in that mindset, like, mm-hmm. blows my mind. Like, I, I'd kill somebody today. Yeah. You know what I mean? So back to the story. So you're with Big Lip Chris, was it? Yeah, name? I was okay. with Big Lip Chris, and like I was so, 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 so sick. He was telling me he's like, "Well, you know, if you want this, you're gonna, you're gonna have to do this," you know. And so I did it. I wasn't with him for very long because I had gotten an infection in my blood, and I had caught a form of MRSA mm-hmm. that was a very rare strand, and I 
just had sores all over me and he wouldn't let me go to the hospital but it got so bad that i wasn't i couldn't make him any more money you know people were looking at me yeah. you know like no you know and so by that point he finally let me go and it and the doctor told me that like if you hadn't come you would have died you would have you would have gone septic and you would have died because the poison in my blood was so and like that's where all these sores were coming out because they were it was the poison trying to come out of my body hmm. and so i got away from him because of that, because I was in the wow. hospital for like eight weeks. So I get out, in and out of jail, you know. I think I, I went to prison once in 2009. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here and I, I got like 15 possession charges. I got grand thefts, possession of paraphernalias, possession of heroines, possession of cocaine, you know, just constantly in and out of jail, having so much contact with law enforcement with judges, mm -hmm. with state attorneys, with doctors. What about treatment? Are you going to treatment a lot or not really? Um, or just jail? Just detoxes, mostly jail. I would go to detox, but just to detox and then boom, mm -hmm. you know, I just need, I just need, to, need, clean up. I just need to clean yeah. up a little bit. You know, that's it. Yeah. My last encounter was with a guy. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's, it's actually started out with a girl. Her name, her name was Carrie and I met her in jail. And um, so we were in the same dorm and then, you know, we both get out of jail. We go our separate ways or whatever. I end up running into her at a bus stop at, by a 7-Eleven. And she, I was looking for a place to stay because the crack house that I was staying at, I didn't want to stay there anymore. And she tells me, she's like, yeah, she's like, we got a room for rent at my house. Come and stay with, you know, come rent the room. It's only $10 a day. It's a nice house. Um, he sells dope, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Word. Sounds like a dream. Yeah, <laughs> word. Let's do it. You know? And so I go, and I walk into the house, and this guy comes. He's got a mouthful of golds, you know, tattoos and everything. He introduces himself, and he's like, my name's Smurf. Hey, I'm Janice. He was like, what's your, your full legal name? And I'm like, why? And he's like, because if you ever get arrested, I need to be able to get you out of jail. I'm like, okay. Give him my name. Shows me the room. I'm like, sweet, you know? Sweet setup, drugs right here, you know, a roof over my head. I'm I'm good to go. And then he comes in and he's like, you know, in order to stay here, you gotta you gotta work for us and you gotta buy, you know, buy drugs from us. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, because I was like doing, I had like a whole bunch of sugar daddies like on the side. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But with him, it had taken a turn for some of the darkest, most evil things that I have ever experienced in my life as far as not just physical abuse from him, but when he was posting me on Backpage, the things that he was promising these people. And so like, I'm at this point where I am living in a constant state of fear on high alert at all times. Any, like, any sudden movements, I'm, you know, I'm scared and I, I'm not sleeping. And the only thing I'm doing is using drugs and, and I'm needing more drugs just to cope with what's happening to my body and my mind. And I really feel like every time something happened, like a part of me died that I'll never get back, mm -hmm. you know? And that went on for, for too long. And I remember like coming back to the house because he would put us up in hotels and, you know, uh, we would have a door, a guard or whatever you want to call him. We called him a doorman. Um, that would watch us just to make, you know, for our safety, but also to make sure that we didn't you leave. Run off or right. Run. But there was a lot of conditioning too, you know, before it could get to that point. And he 
So how long are you with this guy? I was with him for a couple months. Okay. I remember coming back to the house and that the one of the other girls was there that was Holly. And I have never seen somebody so black and blue. I'm not, like even her back was black and blue. Like he beat her so bad because she tried to leave. Mm-hmm. That terrified me. I remember he he let me get a dog, a puppy. And besides the Lord, like I honestly, like it's amazing to me how our bodies are made, how God has made us to where in our minds we can mentally check out to survive very traumatic situations, so like where you are someone who is just being saturated in trauma every single day. God, even though I, I wasn't saved yet, I know he was with me, mm-hmm. giving me the strength to keep moving forward to, you know, face another day because eventually, you know, I would Would be you with, pray at that time at all? Pray for God to just take my life, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Because I, I think at this point, I didn't see any other, anything past this. Like, this is what I'll be for the rest of my life. I won't be anything else, you know? So I was like, I'd rather just die. So I'm sure there's people out there that say like, oh, well, these girls want, like, I'm sure people say this with like the trafficking all the time. Like, oh, well, these girls want to do this stuff or they're not, no one's putting a gun to their head or, you know, they're just going to, how come they go to jail and then go back to doing the same thing, you know? So like, you know, what do you say to like people that are saying things like that? So there is a such thing. And and I think a lot of um, society takes that picture, you know, that movie Taken, mm-hmm. where, and while that does really happen, yeah. you know, people are chained down to a bed in a brothel, being kidnapped. And forced. And forced. Like sex dolls, yeah. Right, that does happen. But there's um, a different type of chain that you don't exactly, see. Exactly, and that is a mental and an emotional um, prison mm-hmm. that you're in. Like I said earlier, when you have somebody that is your only form of survival from everything, they take away your ability to speak, to think for yourself, when you eat, what you wear, and they beat you down so far to the ground, but yet they're the only one there Mm -hmm. to give you their hand to pull you up. That form of manipulation and abuse and that type of psychological trauma is debilitating. Yeah, and they're not giving you any portion of the money, right? Mm -hmm. Because I I would always wonder, like, how come the girls don't just pocket some of the money, but it's because they're so scared, right? That if they get caught stealing or anything like that, they'll get beat. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, you're told, you know, not to trust the police. Of course, you're conditioned, you know, you're trained. And like I said, these guys are so good at what they do. And you're at the weakest point of your life. Mom and dad probably haven't answered your call in years. Exactly. You have nobody. nobody They're the only person you have, Mm -hmm. you know? So he let me get a dog. And like, this was so important to me because this was something that loved me and I knew loved me and I loved this dog, right? It was like the only thing that brought me any happiness in such a dark, dark time in my life. What kind of dog? He was a Shih Tzu mix. So his name was (laughs) Oreo. He was black and white. He was so cute. Anyway, so Smurf was sending me on an out call and... I left and like sometimes I would take my dog with me. I'm not going to lie. You know, Mm -hmm. like he was small enough to fit in my purse and I'll take Mm -hmm. him with me. So I didn't take him this time. When I come back, like every, like I couldn't even go to the bathroom without this dog, like at the door, Mm -hmm. you know, just I need you. I need you. I need you. You know, and when I come home, uh, BJ was sitting, he was our doorman. 
BJ was sitting there and I come home and he, I can't find Oreo. I'm like, where's my dog? You know, normally he's like right, right mm-hmm. here. When you, you know, open the door. Right. Yeah. As soon as I open the door, he wasn't there. I start looking for him and I look underneath the couch and he is there like shivering, shaking. And so I'm flipping. I'm like, what the F happened? Mm-hmm. And uh, Smurf tried to kill my dog. I don't know, you know, what it was. He Smurf was not home at that moment. I went and I grabbed a knife and I told BJ, I was like, if you effing try to stop me from leaving, I'm going to kill you. And I got my dog and I left, you know, because he, he tried to hurt the only thing that I, mm-hmm. that I loved. I didn't love myself anymore, you know? It's like John Wick. <laughs> yeah. Because that's all he had left. That's you know all I mean? had. It's not about the dog. It's that this dog represents everything else that has been taken from me. Yeah. And um, BJ just looked. And so I just kind of, I grabbed my dog and I backed out of the house with a knife with in my knife. hand. Yeah. Wow. A week later, uh, Smurf found me. and Wow. He found you? Yeah. Where? Uh, I was hiding out at a crack, yeah, or, yeah. crack house. He found me. He brought me back. And then um, two days later, his house gets raided. Did he beat the shit out of you? When yeah. he saw you? Yeah. Yeah. He beat the shit out of me. He, he failed to he, mention that. <laughs> yeah. He beat the shit out of me. He he actually did a number on the side of my head and like wow. disfigured my ear really bad. And Wow. Yeah. They raid the house. I was not at the house when the house was raided. So I get the call. So apparently there had been like a two year long investigation. MBI was watching him for, you know, human trafficking. And what's, drug trafficking. M- what's MBI? Metropolitan Bureau of Investigation. They're kind of like the... HT police, but on a federal level. Mm-hmm. So they raid the house. They charge him with uh, racketeering, conspiracy to traffic heroin, conspiracy to traffic cocaine, human trafficking of a minor. There was a minor there? Uh, so not at that house, but, but at, a at, house. An, at a different house he had. Well, so there was two of them. So we had one working on the west side and one working on the east side. Mm-hmm. So Smurf was on the east side, Man Man was on the west side. Um, but they were all... An enterprise. Are these gangs or are these just, no. they're just selling drugs and mm-hmm. tricking out girls, mm-hmm. trafficking girls? Yeah. So there was me and 23 girls, other women. How much money do you think each girl was bringing in a day? At least five or 6,000. A day? Mm-hmm. Holy cow. Yeah. You got how many hours a day are you guys working? Like, non-stop like non-stop, non-stop. Wow. as long as that phone rings and it's mainly from back page mm-hmm. yeah back page or you know regular clients yeah mm-hmm. um but but if you think about that amount of money and you think about how many times that's actually happening to somebody on a daily right now, basis in a square mile radius from here yeah. well no 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 i'm saying like like the girls like the, what we oh, were having yeah. to do like how many times that happened to us in a day mm-hmm. you know that does something to you. Yeah. I, don't, I don't care who you are. Um, but uh, he gets arrested. I see it on the news. This is a huge, high-profile human trafficking case now out of Orlando. Like the Attorney General Pam Bondi, um, OPD, MBI, the state attorney's office. I mean, they're all on the news talking about the arrest of Smurf, AKA, or Keith Hamlet, a.k.a. Smurf, plus Man Man. And then I see my face on the screen, too. I was like, oh, my gosh. So I'm wanted. For racketeering. Why? 
Like, how are you not seen as a victim? Like, they don't see that's, the... That's the thing. That's the thing. I was. I was classified as a victim. And that's the issue. And, and, and with what I do today with work, that's what we're trying to get changed. When somebody is a victim, you don't arrest them. Yeah. You know, but the, the state attorney and the police, they want to solidify their cases so much that they want to hold a charge over somebody's head so For they can get them to testify. Yeah. They get, you know, their nail in the coffin. They and then a lot of times these girls don't stick around. They leave town or whatever, so they don't have a witness. Right. So th they do that to keep them cooperating. Yeah. But the thing is, is, and you know, Florida law, there's charges that you can charge people with that do not require a witness. RICO is one of them. Mm-hmm. So for people that don't know, can you explain what RICO is? So RICO is it's, it's racketeering. Um, racketeering is a charge that they used to charge the mob the bosses. Mob with, yeah, back in it's the like, when 80s. You have, it's when you acting, pose as a legitimate business. Acting as an enterprise. Yeah, acting as an enterprise. Yeah. You're acting as an enterprise and obtaining money illegally. Mm -hmm. It's like if you have like a tire shop and you're selling cocaine out the back. They would get the mob bosses with it um, for like tax. When they couldn't hit them tax with tax evasion, evasion they'd hit yeah, them for racketeering. They would hit them for racketeering. Yeah. So that charge has has come up and and is really big uh, in HT cases now. Mm -hmm. So they hit me with a racketeering. I end up getting arrested, and here I am, you know, sitting. And and since this case is mostly women, um, the jail that I was housed in only had nine pods for women. Now, when you have all these women and you're all on the same case, you have to keep them separated. Mm -hmm. So I was, for the first four months of my incarceration, I was uh, in a cell all by myself. And I was only out, allowed out- How many months? For four months, two hours a day. And so it was one man cells, but there was three other of my co-defendants in this. It was the juvenile dorm yeah. that was in there. So we would all get turns, you know, coming out, but we could never be out together. together. Yeah. So the only person I had to talk to was the CO and she was a Christian and she would come in and I would talk to her and she would talk to me about the Bible. Wow. And she would like tell me stories in the Bible, but like the way she was telling it to mm -hmm. me, it was so, she was like such a good storyteller. And so she would tell me the story and then tell me where that was at in the Bible. And I would go back in my cell and, and I would read, read it. it. Oh, yeah. Wow. Then I started praying and like, you know, I don't think like I was saved at that moment, you know, mm -hmm. but like something was, was starting. starting. Like I was eager to seek Christ and um, wanted to know, like I craved to know him, you know, but I hadn't been granted like repentance or faith or anything like that yet. And the state attorney comes, I was, I was assigned a victim's advocate. She used to come and see me and I'm like best friends with her to this day. The CO? No, the, the, the victim's advocate. Oh, the victim's yeah. advocate. So I was assigned a victim's advocate. Which is what? Can you explain that? So a victim's advocate is just somebody that, because if, if you have like a cop or a prosecutor, they're more concerned with what the they're trying yeah. to do. A victim's advocate is somebody who is there to make sure the rights of the victim are not violated. They're treated with dignity and respect, basically that they don't make the victim do what they don't want to do. They, mm -hmm. it, we're a voice for them. Gotcha. She comes and sees me and she's like, I'm offering you an opportunity for a brand new life. And at first, you know, I still had that like street mentality. I was like, I'm not snitching, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> I'm not snitching. 
And, and I said, no. And so my attorney comes and sees me. He's like, look, this guy's going down with or without you. You might as well jump on this bandwagon. And, I'll, and he was like, they're going to offer you treatment. They're kind of going to, they're sending me away into kind of like a witness protection thing mm-hmm. uh, out of the state of Florida. I'll get away from Orlando. And I was like, you know what? Fine, I'll do it. So I go to this safe house in rural Alabama, like out in the middle of nowhere. Here I am, this you know city girl from Orlando, out in the sticks, driving by a Piggly Wiggly, and I'm like, "What is that?" <laughs> you know, I'd never seen one of those before in my life. But it was a it was a faith based organization, you mm-hmm. know. So the gospel was preached and Bible study and. Is this Dunklin? No, it was Pell City. Okay. Uh, organization's called the Well House. Mm-hmm. So I was getting treated for my trauma, but I was not getting treated for my addiction. Like we weren't going into 12 step mm-hmm. recovery things or anything like that. And so I was an addict before I was a victim. Um, so I, I I think that piece was missing. And um, the first pass that I had and I went home on, I, I used. And I was back out in active addiction for 42 days. And those 42 days was worse than like the 16 and a half years that I was in active addiction because by this point I knew there was another oh, way. Yeah. There was, I didn't have to live like that anymore. And I was miserable. And when I finally got caught, I was like, thank you, Lord, because I hated. It was like when I was out there and I was back in like the dope holes and the shooting galleries and the crack houses, like I was able to see everybody for what they really were. It was just an evil to me. Mm-hmm. It was like the Lord was giving me to see through spiritual eyes, like just what's what this is really representing and this is not who I am anymore. Mm-hmm. So I go to jail and... um the prosecutor wants to make an example out of me because I'm the first one that screws up her plea deal. <laughs> I get sentenced to 69.45 months in the Department of Corrections, which is like six and a half years. Yeah, It was crazy because like when the judge sentenced me, like I, I know what I heard and I go to prison. I, I have a piece of paper telling me 2022 is when I'm getting out, but I don't believe it, you know? And so I automatically put an appeal in. You know, buy me some time, figure out, because I got to figure out something. So my first year clean was in prison. And even though I was not, like, I wasn't exposed to any 12-step in Mm -hmm. in prison, like, I held on to my faith. You were staying clean. Yeah, and staying clean. And And there's probably massive amounts of drugs in prison. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, I had my bunkie, not in, like, fentanyl patches and Suboxone and, I mean, all that stuff. And I mean, she's nodding out right to the left of me. And I'm just like, Lord, if I can't do this in here, I definitely can't do it out there. And so like, I just stayed in my Bible. I stayed to myself. And here I am. I like, I have like this, you know, I'm not going to do all this time, but I'm still getting these pieces of paper and my date's only moving, mm-hmm. you know, 10 days a month yeah. or whatever, or 15 days. I can't even remember how, how the game time works anymore. So uh, I had put an appeal in. And so I had a call out to go to my law clerk. And so I go down there and um, she, I'm talking to her and I'm, I'm telling her, you know, about my case and I'm, I'm a victim of human trafficking. I, w- I was classified as a victim. The state attorney said in open court, I have the transcripts that I am a victim of human trafficking and I am in prison behind a crime that I committed because I was trafficked. That's mm-hmm. against the law. Mm-hmm. And so we finished talking and this other law clerk like, comes up to me and she's like, listen, I wasn't trying to listen in on your conversation. She's like, but can I talk to you? I said, yeah. 
And so there was um, men who were recruiting from inside the prisons. They were looking up online, typing in random names, looking at people's EOS dates. And when they were like, you know, six months or whatever till they get out. They, they would were, go visit it? They would visit. Them. They would, no, they wouldn't visit them, but they would write them letters, put money on the phone, send them money, say, hey, let me come pick you up. And then they were trafficking them. Wow. I didn't yeah. even think people, that's oh, like yeah. such a like ingenious thing, but it's a really sick, fucked up thing to do. So yeah. they would type in Danielle something, or that, just whatever, like a last, name, like a last Smith. name, and then look up who's mm -hmm. a female. And who looks and good. And who has drug charges and who has like trafficking yeah. charges and then write them and then get them that way. Wow, that's fucking yeah. crazy. He got busted out of Orlando for doing it. His name oh was Rick Rawls. God. He only got three years though. He's already out. <laughs> but uh, so there was like, there was posters all over the prison, mm -hmm. you know, warning inmates of human trafficking, what was going on. So there was also an attorney out of a, a law firm that was dedicating his practice to the expungement and the release of women who were victims of human trafficking that are in prison behind being trafficked. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways that he found clients to help was through the law clerk when people would come in. And so she's like, listen, there's this attorney. Here's a questionnaire. She's like, I want you to go back to your dorm. She's like, there's a lot of really hard questions on it because you have to prove that you're a victim of human trafficking. So you got to talk about a lot of hard things, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of painful stuff. She's like, I, I want you to fill this out. She's like, take your time. And she's like, and here's his address and mail this to him. So I said, okay, whatever. Thank you. And, um, I go back to my dorm. I like glance over it. And I mean, I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing that right now. Like, I, I can't feel that right now. So I go and I call my dad. And uh, he immediately says, he's like, I've been waiting for your call. He's like, we got to call Tammy, my victim's advocate. Mm -hmm. He's like, she really needs to talk to you. So I said, okay. So we call her on three-way. And she's like, oh my gosh, I was at an HT conference this weekend. I met an attorney. I told him all about you. He wants you to write him. He wants to help attorney. you. And it's the same attorney. Mm -hmm. that I had just gotten, you know. News about, yeah. Yeah. So I was like, okay, God, <laughs> it's weird. But um, he sets up a, a call with me with classification, and we talk. And um, by this point, so I got sentenced. And my case broke in 2015. I got sentenced in 2017. It's almost 2018. So they're finally going to trial like three years later. So there is no reliable witnesses everybody's either back on dope or they can't find them or they're not willing to testify mm -hmm. and there's a new prosecutor on the case and uh so he my attorney gets with the prosecutor and says what about janice mm -hmm. and um you know i went into this blind like they couldn't promise me anything but by this point my release date is 2022 i'll take six months yeah of course. i don't care so um I go and I got to face my trafficker in open court in front of a jury, tell them what he did to me, and he got sentenced to 25 years in prison. Wow. I mean, I think a little bit of healing happened, you know, when I was able to face him. Were you scared at all, like testifying in court? Of course. I was, I was really scared, but I had my victim's advocate there in the, like in the audience or whatever, mm -hmm. and uh, my dad was there too. Like it was empowering you know, because he had taken any type of ability to speak up for myself, um, to think for myself. It, he had taken that from me. 
you know? And I'm sure from hundreds of other people. Right. So to be able to look him dead in his eye and say what he did and the things that I saw, you know, and it, even with what I've just told you is just, you know, a small portion yeah, of, course. of what happened, it was empowering. And I think a little, I think I healed a little bit that day, but there was still so much work to be done, mm-hmm. you know? So he goes to prison and they drop my charges and they vacate my sentence completely, which is great. But what now? Now you have this addiction and yeah. trauma and all this sort right. of stuff. So what do I do now? I didn't How want... old are you at this point? I was 34. Okay. Oh, uh, but when did you meet Rachel? 2013. So you met her in 2013 in jail? Yes. And she stayed clean throughout that? Oh, it was 2014. 14? I met her. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. 2014. Yeah. Yes. That's cool. Yeah. I met her in 2014. When did you guys reconnect? Like when did you, when did you know that she was staying clean or doing good or whatever? So I knew she was staying clean because I, I saw her on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked a little bit like right after she got out. Mm-hmm. And so she was, of course, you know, doing the good thing and I wasn't. So what's the point of talking? Yeah. Just, you know, we have nothing in common right now. <laughs> Why would I talk to you? <laughs> so uh, so she was doing, yeah, she was doing good. And um, when I got clean this time, I found her mm-hmm. like on Facebook and sent her a friend request and we talked and you know, we cried and I told her I was clean and she was, you know, just, and I mean, this was like early on in, in yeah. my recovery, you know, I was still in a program. Yeah. She's actually my inspiration for, well, there's a couple of reasons, but she's one of them for becoming a paralegal. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. So, um. All right. Back to the story. So you get out of, oh, your charges get dropped. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? So I, I was like, I need help. I need a program. I got to get out of Orlando. Um, the only thing, the only three requirements are uh, Christ-centered. They take you to meetings and you can smoke. <laughs> and then I'll go. That's mm-hmm. all. That, those are the only things that I want. At the time, my brother lived in Jacksonville. So I was like, yeah, let's let's do Jacksonville. Because I didn't want to leave Florida because I didn't want to be too far from my family. So I come to Jacksonville. And this program, um, so it was founded in 2013, but it didn't open its first safe home until 2017, November of 2017. I came April 26th of 2018. So it was a baby. Yeah, brand new program. Brand new program. I was... This is state funded? mm -mm, It's a nonprofit. Wow. We rely solely on on donations and it's a 501c3. So, but a beautiful, like, you you think you're like walking into like Martha Stewart's house or something mm-hmm. like it's you know it's not like you're state funded where you're in the hood yeah you know you can buy dope from across the street exactly. type programs yeah so uh you know I'm there went through a lot of um counseling you know a lot of trauma counseling and I mean and there were days that like I didn't think I was gonna make it because I'm wanting to run so bad because I'm finally like opening myself up and like dealing with all of the nasty stuff on the inside that I've been running from for the past like 20 something years. And that was so hard to do it clean, you know, to actually like face those feelings and face that trauma, face that pain, face myself, the things that I did, because yeah, I was a victim, but I victimized people too. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And that was hard, man. You know, that was hard, but uh, I stayed and I, I stayed no matter what, because I wanted this. Like I, I wanted to, I wanted to stay clean. I wanted, even though I had no idea what that looked like, I wanted a life, you know? I didn't know anything else. Like sit from 16 years old, I was banging dope. 
So I had no idea like what it meant to like pay bills and, you know, have like, I, I didn't know anything, how to have a bank account, nothing. Mm-hmm. So this was, I was like being taught everything from scratch. And like this organization, these people like loved me with the love of Christ, man. Like when I didn't love myself and they helped me and held my hand through everything. And um, I've never been surrounded by people like that, that, you know, you, I couldn't even look people in the eye when I first got there. You know, I didn't trust anybody. I had no idea. Like you may tell me you you care about me and you want to help me, but I, there, you want something. And there was nothing like that, you know, and they believed in me. I couldn't see how, because all I saw myself as is, you know, trash, like damaged goods and, you know, just someone to be abused and taken advantage of and never seen with any worth or value or human dignity. Like I didn't see any of that. And like they saw all that in me. They walked me through some pretty dark times and like I ended up, you know, going to to a 12-step program and getting involved and really active in a church and got baptized, got a sponsor, started working steps. I couldn't do like service work because I didn't have a car, but I would (laughs) attend like subcommittees and participate. So I was a voting member because like I was doing everything my, like my life depended on it because to me it did, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever I had to do to stay clean, I did it. And, um, I stayed out of relationships because I mean, I was a, I was toxic, you know, I, I had nothing to offer anybody. And like relationships were always bad for me in the past. And like, I couldn't pick a decent guy, mm-hmm. you know, my picker's broken. <laughs> look exactly. At, look at my, uh, track look at, record. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> look at my track record, man. It's horrible. But also, you know, I wanted a strong enough foundation to stand on. So the day that that relationship doesn't work out, I don't crumble Exactly. and I don't go get high over it. So like I started dreaming, like, okay, what do I want to do with my life? You know? And I let me ask you, what was your sponsor like? Like, what are some like characteristics your sponsor had that like you were like, this is the girl? So the first sponsor I had, I thought she was all right, but she just wasn't for me. So I broke up with her and Mm -hmm. I got, uh, I got my sponsor that I have now. And I loved her, her presence, like who she was, um, her, her story, how committed she was to the program, um, her love for the program and how she was somebody who like she showed the love of the program to the newcomer. Mm-hmm. You know, she made me feel welcome. And I remember like walking up to her, I said, look, this is gonna be really crazy, but um, I, I need a sponsor and I want you to sponsor me, but you have to have a background check in order to sponsor me. <laughs> she's like, all right. And I was like, really? You asked her for a background check? Well, no, because oh. our place is a safe house. Oh, gotcha. So, so they do background checks? Yeah. Because wow. the, the 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 location is undisclosed because we have yeah like there's still men possibly looking for these wow. girls so nobody can know where the house is wow. unless you're vetted wow you know what I mean I didn't even think of that that's crazy yeah she was like okay and I was like really and she's like yeah of course mm-hmm. and she's been my sponsor like ever since and you know I love that woman to death and. <laughs> She was there when I would call because I was going to leave because of the TV, (laughs) you know, like dumb shit, really stupid stuff. I made the decision. I'm like, I'm going to go to college. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go. And I was like, all right, well, what do I want to do? You know, I'm I'm older. Like, I don't want a degree plan. You know, it's going to take me like five years to graduate to get a bachelor's because I'm going to have to work. 
I hate math. What can I do where I don't have to do a whole lot of math classes? <laughs> so I found paralegal studies. Nice. And I literally built my degree plan around how many math classes I would I would have to take. And also in a way, I was like, how funny is this? And how like I got like internal joy from this. I can laugh at you. I'm an ex-convict, an ex-criminal, an ex-drug addict, and I'm studying law. Yeah. You know? There you go. That was my haha moments. Mm -hmm. So um, so yeah, so I did that. Got an amazing opportunity, um, an attorney with, you know, I had no employment history, let me work at his firm part-time, started off. Um, I was going to school and crazy to me. Well, and they do background checks on you before you apply for jobs? It depends. So it depends. Um, so this was a small firm, so no. no. Okay. But like big firms with like an HR department, yeah. yes, they will. So I'm, I start working for him and I'm doing probate and guardianship law and uh, learning that. And he eventually asked me to come on full time. And like now I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm killing it. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a 4.0 GPA in school. I'm making straight A's on the president's list every semester. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm starting to go back into the jails and like help other women and share my story in front of, uh, I served on a panel down in um, Tampa with uh, MBI, Pasco County Sheriff, uh, the state attorney's office, and a whole bunch of uh, public defenders and like, to talk about human trafficking and the experience that I had with the mm -hmm. criminal justice system and how it did me justice, but it didn't do me justice. Mm -hmm. You know, um, speaking in front of a whole bunch of uh, pastors in the community, sharing my story, sharing my hope, sharing my redemption in Christ. And that's another thing, like after a while, like my, my hunger and my thirst for the Lord and like for his word, um, grew so much and you know sharing the gospel with people because i think like at the time like when i was when i was being trafficked like you know i wanted to die and and i wanted someone to save me or or, or something but i wasn't thinking about my eternity mm -hmm. you know and me with who i am now and like it talks about it in the bible like we can look outside and god's glory is displayed all around us look at all of creation you know you look at the trees, you look at the oceans, you know, that's not just some cosmic explosion. That is something that is created by a creator. I know that I know that I know that even though that those things happen to me, like the Lord has turned that around for good because of what I do today. I work with victims. Um, I'm a victim's advocate now. So now you're a victim's advocate? I'm a victim's oh, so advocate cool. now. And you're really close with your current, your old uh, victim's advocate? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that's. Yeah, wow. we're really close. How did like she get friends. into it? She does it voluntarily. Like she's like, she... She as, just goes street, per, like a regular... Well, so she goes into the jails and wow. screens for trafficking. But was she trafficked herself? Mm -mm. She's just like a good person. <laughs> yeah, she loves Christ. Wow. Oh, she she's a super yeah. Christian. Yeah, she loves the Lord. Wow. Um, and, and that's what I do today, you know, and I work for... Um, amazing organization on the anti-trafficking advocacy. I'm the survivor leader on the Call to Arms Coalition. So right now we're just in Jacksonville, but we're getting ready to bring our model of our program into other states because of what we're doing is working. Like people mm -hmm. are being restored. You know, people are healing, you know, with the model of our program and how we're doing it. I, I bought my first home last November. Congrats. Yeah. About to graduate college. Awesome. With so. a mass, uh, bachelor's? No. So it's going to be, it's an associate's in paralegal okay. studies. And you're a paralegal now still? Well, so right now I'm a national legal advocate. Okay. And I'm a victim's advocate and survivor leader for 
Awesome. We're an organization here. What um like what do you see now that's going on in human trafficking that is like like how is it still like so much work to do? Like what what are things like people should look out for? Or like like way that people are setting up human trafficking like these days that you're seeing? So I would love to see, I guess, advocacy on the demand side. You know, we're constant and so we're constantly arresting the victims. Yes, we're arresting the traffickers when we can get to them, but the buyers, mm-hmm. you know, what I would love to see, and this is just my crazy vision, you know, you know how we have like a sex trafficking registry? Mm-hmm. I'd love to see a John registry. Like mm-hmm. you have to register as somebody who has purchased somebody for sex. Not only that, but you have to pay money and that money that you pay not only for your supervision, but um, for your fines goes towards victims and organizations that rescue victims out of trafficking. I want to see harsher punishments. I, I want to see more in, in the porn industry um, because porn fuels trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, dismantling and shutting down Pornhub and all the other sites that promote that. Um, I don't think people understand pornography and what it does because it, it gives men an unrealistic view of what sex is. There was a interview, or it was an article uh, that I read, and it was a 18-year-old boy, and he had a 16-year-old girlfriend, and they had, and, and the boyfriend had a, an addiction to porn, mm-hmm. and um, they had sex for the first time, and when she came home, she had bruises and marks around her throat, and so the parents saw it, called the police. She was ashamed to say, "I had sex with him," and they arrested him for raping her. But what happened was that's the type of porn that he was watching and he Mm -hmm. thought that that's That's what was normal you know Mm -hmm. so i would want to see something more on the demand side um with men letting them actually know because in their mind they're only seeing and wanting what they want as far as their their desires right they have no idea the woman behind that camera and what that lifestyle is actually doing to her mind body and spirit the trauma behind that you know, there's been a lot of interviews with um, former porn porn stars that will tell you stories like you don't see it on camera. They're ta- they're taking out and cutting out. You mm-hmm. know, the rape, the her crying. I mean, all that. And um, I want to see uh, more survivor led advocacy. I mean, there's so many there's so many things. But I I want people to know that it's not something that happens just overseas. You know, mm-hmm. this is happening where you shop, where you eat, where you go to school, where you work. You know, we're hidden in plain sight. I remember um, one of my girls, and I'll never forget this, and like it resonated with me so much. And it's just like she said, you pass me every day and you don't know. And I can remember like being out in the open and trying to talk to somebody with my eyes, mm-hmm. just begging them, help me, you know, just help me. And um. It's something that you can't ignore. Um, it can happen to anybody. You know, there there is a specific class that are more vulnerable than most, but it can happen to anyone, you know, and don't let it be to where until it happens to someone to, to someone you love or you that you care about it. You know, education and awareness is key. And that's what we do a lot of. We do a lot of um, trainings with, you know, police and public defenders and I mean, anybody who will listen, anybody. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, well, I appreciate you so much. You have an amazing story. Definitely, you know, impacted me. So I appreciate you for coming on the show, taking the time to do it. 
you know, hopefully people see this and it raises awareness. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.